There was a pastor who was talking to his church family one Sunday at the end of his message, and he said, now listen, next week I'm going to deliver a message on the importance of telling the truth. So here's your homework assignment. I want all of you to go home, and I want you to read Mark chapter 17. And he said, now, you know, Mark's one of the books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read Mark chapter 17, and, and then come back next week and hear this message on the importance of telling the truth. So most of the people nodded their heads, and the next Sunday the pastor stands up to begin his message, and he says, okay, how many of you um, read Mark chapter 17? Please raise your hands. And about half the people in the church raised their hands. And at that point, the pastor said, well, listen, I want you to know that you're my opening illustration about telling the truth because Mark only has 16 chapters. <laughs> By the way, I won't ever do that to you, so you don't have to worry about an assignment like that. Um, today, we're going to deal with a really, really important question. The question is this, how can you know what is true? How can you know what is true about life, about the world, about God, about everything? And I was thinking this week about a movie, a science fiction movie. It's really a classic that deals with that question. It's called a Matrix. Anybody here ever see a Matrix or one of the sequels? <clears throat> if you know the story, the film describes a future in which people believe that their day-to-day -day world is real, but nothing could be further from the truth. The uh, experience they have is really this elaborate hoax um, because the world they experience is controlled by machines with artificial intelligence, and this simulated reality is called the Matrix. And the, the key person in this whole storyline is a computer programmer um, played by Keanu Reeves. His name is Mr. Anderson. And he wants to know if the world that he lives in is real. And so he gets a number of cryptic messages on his computer, and that leads him to an encounter with a very mysterious man. His name is Morpheus. And they have this conversation, and Morpheus delivers this classic line. He says, remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Now, when you think about it, like Morpheus, God offers us the truth about the world in which we live. The question is, will we accept the truth that God offers? The title of the message today is, How Can I Know What is True? And we're continuing a series. It's called The Big Picture, and it's about how to develop a distinctively Christian worldview. Now, last week we saw that a worldview is really the way that you see the world working and how you fit into it. And so the question is, is what you believe about how the world works and how you fit into it, is that true? And how can you know that it's actually true? Now, as we consider the topic of truth this morning, I want to begin with this question. What does our culture think about truth? Now, this is the first statement that you'll find on your outline. Our American culture has largely rejected the idea of absolute truth. Our culture has largely rejected the idea of absolute truth. Now, absolute truth is a standard that applies to all people in all places and all generations. There was a fascinating survey that was done by a man named George Barna, and he did this survey um, believing that after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, there might be a shift in what Americans believe about absolute truth because that act was pure evil. And what he found was, was rather shocking. In 2000, a survey showed that four out of 10 American adults believed that there was absolute truth. There was a standard that applied to everybody. But after 9-11, only two out of 10 American adults believed that there was absolute truth, a standard that applied to everybody in every place for every generation. And what was also very interesting about this survey is when people were asked, so what do you base your ethical and moral decisions on? Only one in eight cited the Bible. The number one thing that people in this survey base their ethical and moral decisions on is this, their feelings. 
25% of Americans said in that survey the number one thing they base their decisions on when it comes to ethics and morals is how they feel. Now here's another important statement about truth and our culture, and this is on your outline as well. Our culture has embraced a philosophy of tolerance where all ideas are presumed to be equally valid. We've embraced a philosophy of tolerance where all ideas are presumed to be equally valid. Historically, America has been a place where we value freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion. A place where people can express all kinds of ideas and viewpoints. But people in America have become confused about the validity of different viewpoints. You see, in our system of government, all ideas are equally protected under the law. But just because ideas are equally protected doesn't mean that they're equally valid. Because if you do have a standard, an absolute truth by which you measure ideas, then you can say that this idea is true and this one is false. This is right and this is wrong. But the prevailing view in America is this. You can believe something and say, hey, this is true for me, <clears throat> and I might believe the exact opposite, and I would say, this is true for me, and here's the conclusion. You're both right. Now, this point of view is something that's nothing new. In fact, we find it in the Bible. This is a verse <clears throat> from the Old Testament, from the book of Judges, and it says this, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, think about a world where this is actually the way things work, where everybody does what seems right in their own eyes. Uh, a person walks onto a high school campus and shoots students because that's right in their eyes. Or Mother Teresa spends her life taking care of poor people in India because that's right in her eyes. Now, here's the thing. If those two viewpoints, which are completely different, if they're both valid, then what you're doing is elevating the morals of a murderer to the morals of Mother Teresa. But that's a, the logical outcome if there is no absolute truth because if everybody's right, nobody's what? Nobody is wrong. And if somebody has the audacity, the boldness to say, this is morally wrong, then that person in our culture is often labeled as judgmental and intolerant. And that's the next statement on your outline. In our culture, anyone who claims to know the truth, who says this is right and this is wrong, that person is considered judgmental and intolerant. Now, I find it really fascinating that when Jesus taught, so often he would begin with five key words. And these words were so important to Jesus that we find them 78 times in the Gospels, those books that are the biographies of Jesus. These are the five words that Jesus often prefaced his teaching with. I tell you the, I tell you the truth. Now, before we go any further, we need to address this question. What is truth? Because Jesus actually was asked that question when he was on trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And I want to show you a little bit about that conversation. This is from John chapter 18. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight and prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And, and church, notice how profound the statement is by Jesus. For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. Now, Pilate wasn't expecting an answer. He didn't really want an answer. This is a rhetorical question asked by a skeptic, and the irony is that when the truth was standing right in front of him, Pilate didn't recognize the one who is the truth. But when you don't want to see the truth, you don't. 
even when it's staring you right in the face. Now let me give you this simple and yet I think profound definition of truth. It's on your outline. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And this is huge when it comes to understanding what is true. Um, let me use this illustration. What is this object that I'm holding in my hand right here? Can you see this? Okay, you can say it really loud. What is this? Can you see what color it is? It's a black shoe. Do you know what size it is? No, you don't because you can't tell. But inside the shoe, and I know this because it's my shoe, says it's a size 10. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> here's the point. Truth <clears throat> is not relative. Truth is not relative. Truth is not something decided by consensus or by a majority vote. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Now, I could say, um, you know, for you, this is a shoe, but for me, it's a cow. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a train. Do you see the nonsense of that? What do you mean? This is, a, this is a shoe. Everybody can see this is a shoe. But this is exactly what people do when it comes to what they believe about God. This is what I believe about God, and it's true. And this is what you believe about God, and it's true. Now, truth is what corresponds to reality. Not just the opinion of people. It is not relative. It is absolute. Now, that brings up a very important question. How can I know what is true? How can I know what is true about me? How can I know what's true about God, about life, about my future, about all these different things? Now, what I want to do is answer that question by showing you that there are two basic avenues by which we discover truth. And here's the first. Truth is discovered through reason. Truth is discovered through reason. One of the important ways that we arrive at what is true is that we use our minds. We think about things and arrive at a conclusion. You know, for example, um, you may not know this, but a double meat Whopper with cheese has a thousand calories. Now, if you walk in a treadmill for an hour, you will burn about 500 calories. So here's my question. How long do you have to walk in a treadmill to burn the calories you consume by eating one double meat cheese Whopper? Tell me. Two hours. How did you arrive at that truth? By reason, exactly. You did the math. You figured it out. Um, or how about this? When my grandson Noah was a little boy, he loved riddles. And he was always posing these questions to us like, like this. A man is pushing his car along the road when he comes to a hotel and shouts, I'm bankrupt. Why does he say this? Oh, that's a good riddle. Because he's playing Monopoly. Yeah, how do, how do you figure that out? You have to think. You have to use reason. See, God gave us our minds so that we could arrive at truth through reason. And God gave us our minds so that we could know him and love him. And that's what Jesus points out in this verse. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your what? With your mind. We love God with our mind. Now, who was the smartest man, the wisest man who ever lived? King Solomon, and this is what he says in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, so I turn my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things. Solomon was using his God-given gift of reason to understand how the world works and how he fits into it. Now, isn't that an incredible thing that God has given us reason? But here's the reality. Reason will only take you so far. There are things that God has to reveal to us because otherwise we would not know them. And that's the second avenue by which we discover truth. Truth is discovered through revelation. 
Now, I want to point out some ways that God reveals his truth to us, and the first is this. God reveals truth through creation, through creation. Here's a classic verse about that from Psalm 19. It says this, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. Isn't that an amazing thought? You look up into the night sky, and you discover things about God. You know that he's a big, big God, because that's a big, big sky. And there are billions of stars, and it speaks of God's majesty and his power. Did you know that the number one goal of science is simply this, to discover truth? How many of you in your um, educational experience could have been in grade school, high school, college, ever did a science experiment? Anybody ever do that? And you know the scientific method where you have a hypothesis and then you collect data and you reach a conclusion? See, the, the whole process is geared toward discovering what is true, what corresponds to reality. And did you know that over the course of time, some of the greatest scientists in the world have been Christians. People who believe that God created this world and God created it in such a way that we could explore the world and discover who God is and how the world works and where we fit into it. I mean, I, I really love science. Um, before I went to graduate school to study to be a pastor, to study theology, I studied biology and medicine. And I can remember um, studying for an exam in biology where I'm looking through a microscope and we're studying all these cells and all these different things, and I would just stop and go, God, you're amazing. I mean, the design, the, the creativity here is stunningly beautiful. Now, next week, we're going to have a, uh, a message about the distinction between two worldviews. One is an evolutionary worldview, and the other is called creationism or intelligent design. But I want you to know this, that there has never been and there will never be any contradiction between the discoveries of science and biblical truth because God is the author of them both. But let me be quick to add, there can be and there certainly are discrepancies between the theories of science and what the Bible says. But here's the reality. There will never be any discrepancies between actual discoveries of science and what the Bible says because God's truth encompasses everything. As Francis Schaeffer, the famous theologian and philosopher once said, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. So God reveals truth through creation. Here's another way that God reveals truth, through our conscience, through our conscience. There's a man who went to his counselor and said, you know, um, I've been doing some things that I know I shouldn't be doing, and my conscience is killing me. And the counselor says, well, do you want me to help you find a way to strengthen your willpower? And the guy said, no, I was hoping you could help me find a way to weaken my conscience. Check out this verse from the book of Romans about your conscience. It says, even Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who do not have God's written law, and this is a reference to the, the law in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, even Gentiles show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written where? Where's it written? In their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. So what does this passage tell us? That everybody has what? A conscience. Everybody has this, this innate sense of, what is right, sense of what is right and what is wrong. Um, there's a man named Chuck Colson. How many of you know that name, Chuck Colson? Uh, he was in the world of politics, went to prison, became a follower of Christ, has had an amazing ministry and influence um, in terms of helping people develop a Christian worldview. And he used this example. He said, imagine that you have this, this old lady. She's 92 years old. She's um, blind. She walks with a cane. And she's trying to cross a busy intersection in New York City. Now, 
um, he would say, tell me which one of these three options is morally right. Number one, you can ignore her and let her just go off on her own. Number two, you can help her across the street. Or number three, you can push her into oncoming traffic. So what's the answer? Well, that's an easy one, isn't it? It's a no-brainer. You've got to help her across the street. But here's the thing. You don't have to be a Christian to know the right answer. You could be a Buddhist. You could be a Jew. You could be a Muslim. You could have no faith at all and say, well, that's obviously the right thing. Why? Because God's law, as the scripture says, is written on our hearts. But here's the thing. When you persistently make wrong moral choices, it affects your conscience. It can weaken your conscience. It can damage your conscience. And in an extreme case, it can destroy your conscience. So quick review. How does God reveal truth? What's the first thing? You can, through creation, what's the second thing? Conscience. And here is the third thing. God reveals truth through the Bible. Through the Bible. I read a story this week about a young man who wanted to base everything he did on the Bible. He had to have a Bible verse for everything he did. And it was working pretty well for him until he went away to college. And when he went away to college as a freshman, he fell in love with this beautiful young lady. And every night he would walk her to her dorm room and he wanted to kiss her, but he wasn't sure there was a Bible verse that would give him the green light to do that. And so he was searching for this Bible verse, but every night he would walk her to her dorm room and he would longingly look in her eyes and say, good night, and then he would turn and walk away. Well, this went on for a couple of weeks, and then one night, he's standing there getting ready to tell her good night, and she grabs him by the shoulders, plants a 10-second kiss on his lips. When he comes up for air, he stammers, Bible verse, Bible verse. And before she kisses him the second time, she says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. <laughs> now, church, I got to tell you, I don't think that's the main point of that verse. But I do know this, that God has given us his word to show us how to live in this world. Here's a beautiful, beautiful passage. It's from 2 Timothy. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is, and do you see that next word? What is true. Scripture teaches us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Now that brings a really important question to mind. How do I know the Bible is true? I mean, there are people who say the Bible is true, but there are other people who say that it's not. In fact, you may have heard this objection before, and I've heard this so many times. You know, I mean, how can we believe the Bible? It's a bunch of stories that were handed down from one generation to the next, and, you know, they've changed so much over time. How do we even know what really happened? Ever hear that objection to the truthfulness of the Bible? Well, if somebody says, Pastor Dudley, why do you believe that this collection of stories is true? I would tell them this, on the basis of external and internal evidence. And then they would probably say, what? And I would say, well, let me explain. Because external evidence has to do with things like the number of manuscripts we have of the Bible, um, when they were written, um, their consistency with one another. For example, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered a number of years ago. And what they found is the scroll of Isaiah, which was 800 years earlier than the one that we had, virtually had no differences. It was just like punctuation that had changed in 800 years. And I believe that's because the scribes in Israel, the, the people who dedicated their lives to copying scripture, knew how important it was to be accurate, and God oversaw that process. Um, external evidence has to do with things like history and archaeology. And there's another great example. For years, um, biblical scholars were um, really um, ridiculed because they said there was an, uh, a civilization called the Hittites, and the historians in academia said, there's no such thing as a Hittite. 
And then, and I think this was about 100 years ago, there's a guy, his name is Hugo Winkler. He discovered thousands and thousands of clay tablets in the Hittite capital. And now everybody believes, yeah, there was a civilization of people called Hittites. And then there's internal evidence for the Bible. And that has to do with eyewitness accounts. And when you read this book, you realize, you know what? So much of the information that's being transmitted is from eyewitnesses. People saw the things that Jesus did. They witnessed his miracles. They saw him die. They saw him rise from the dead. I mean, there's one account in Scripture of 500 people seeing Jesus alive at the same time. And so as your pastor, I really encourage you, investigate the evidence for the reliability and the truthfulness of the Bible. And I encourage you to do this. If you've never read the whole Bible, read the whole book. And as you do that, realize this is the goal, not just to get through the Bible, but to get the Bible through you. Because this book is true, and this truth transforms our hearts and our minds and our lives. Now, here is, here's another way that God reveals truth to us. He reveals the truth through Christ. Through Christ. Look at these words of Jesus. These are classic words that Jesus says to Thomas. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in our culture, a statement like that is often considered intolerant and narrow-minded. But here's the most important question. Is it true? I mean, Jesus says, I'm the only way to God. Is that a true statement? Because when you think about it, Muhammad said, I'm a prophet of the truth, and Buddha said, I'm searching for the truth, and Jesus says, but wait a minute, I am the truth. So is that, is that true? Is Jesus the only way that you can have a relationship with God? Well, before I answer that question, let me just, let me just say this because I think it's so important. When we're trying to share the truth with other people, we need to be aware of this, that in our country, um, our culture is increasingly hostile to God's truth. I mean, there are many people who just don't want to hear Christian truth. There are many people who get angry when Christians simply try to say, this is what God's word says. And I believe the starting point in talking with people is this to care about them, to actually love them, to be concerned about them. And that's what the Bible says, that we should speak the truth how? In love. Because when somebody knows you care about them, they're going to be a lot more receptive to what you say. And church, we need to realize this, that what we have to say is hard to hear. It really is. Now, if I want to tell somebody the good news about Jesus, I don't start with the good news. What do I start with? You should know this. I start with the bad news. And the bad news is hard to hear. If I'm talking to somebody and, and I say, listen, um, what the Bible says is that you've got a messed up heart. Um, you've got a heart that pulls you away from God's purpose and God's plan. In fact, um, you've committed crimes against God. It's called sin. And you haven't loved God and loved people the way that God tells you to. And, and, and not only that, you're separated from God because he's holy and you're not. And by the way, God's just. He can't just you know, look the other way. He's going to punish every sin you've ever committed. And that punishment is to die and be separated from him forever. Is that an easy truth to hear? No, it's not. But if I'm going to share that truth with somebody, how I share it becomes critically important. Because I'm not just pointing my finger at somebody and saying, that's true of you. See, I've got three fingers pointing back. It's true of me. I have come into this world with a heart that is broken, a heart that is messed up, a heart that is sinful and selfish. And what I know is that Jesus Christ is the only one who can rescue me. And so I've run to him. And I encourage you to run to him, too, because he loves people like us. Now, that's a different approach than just pointing out the truth. We have to speak the truth in love. And that's what Jesus did. 
I mean, what prompted Jesus to come to our world in the first place? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What held Jesus on the cross? It wasn't the nails. It was his great love for the people that he was laying down his life to rescue. And that is the story in the Bible, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, comes to our world, lives a perfect life. And by the way, that perfect life uniquely qualifies him to be our substitute, to die in our place. And so he voluntarily goes to a cross, and God's willing to put our sin on Jesus, to punish him in our place. Jesus dies, but then he doesn't stay dead. He comes back to life. And he says, if you want a new life, if you want to know the truth about life, then come and follow me. Because I'm not just the way. I'm not just the life. I am the truth. I remember I had a conversation one time with a couple that went through our membership class. And I was talking to them about the bad news and the good news. And I said, listen, I just have to tell you that... that um, my encouragement is to run to Jesus because he really is the only one that can rescue you and give you a new life. And I remember the, the wife and the husband both said this to me. Pastor Dudley, are you sure about this? Because this is a really important decision. I mean, you're asking us to stake our lives on the fact that what you're telling us is true. And I said, well, I'm staking my life on the fact that what I'm telling you is true because I believe with all my heart that the story in the Bible, this gospel, this good news of Jesus is the absolute truth. I believe in his virgin birth. I believe in the miracles that he did. I believe in the words that he spoke. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe he's coming back. Now church, here's the thing. If we believe these things, what do we do with them? What do we do with this precious truth that God's given us? And here's the answer. This is on your outline. What do you do with the truth? And here's all three answers. You believe it, you live it, and you share it. We need to believe the truth. We need to live the truth. We need to share the truth. Now, I want you to look at these words of Jesus about what happens when you do this. It's from John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed him, that's where it starts, right? Believing the truth. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, which is a way of saying if you obey my teaching, if you actually do what I say, then you are really my disciples. Then, as you believe and do the truth, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? The truth will set you free. Now, church, I want you to think honestly about your response to this question. If you're a Christian this morning, I want to ask you this. To what degree are you experiencing Christ's freedom in your life today? And here's why I ask the question. Because the more you believe God's truth, the more you will experience God's freedom. Let me say that again. The more you believe God's truth, the more you will experience God's freedom. Because think about this. If you really believe that God's in charge, not just of the world, but of your life, if you really believe that God loves you and cares about you, if you believe that God has a purpose for your life and he will provide everything necessary to accomplish that purpose, you will experience increasing freedom from fear, freedom from worry, freedom from anxiety, because you know that you're in the best hands there are. You're in God's hands. Or how about this? If you really believe what God says about money, uh, what God says about stuff, that, that he owns it all, it's not your stuff, it's his stuff, and you're just managing that stuff for God, then you will have and increasing freedom to give generously. Because you're not trying to hold on to stuff. You're not attached to stuff. You want to use it to accomplish God's purpose in the world. But that is directly related to what you believe about what God says. 
Or how about this? I mean, if you believe that God has really forgiven you, if you believe that your past is really settled because Jesus paid for your sins, it helps you experience more and more freedom from guilt and shame and regret. Do you see how that works? I mean, the more you believe God's truth, the more you experience God's freedom. Because here is the reality. I mean, you can say, hey, this is what I believe. You can think, hey, this is what I believe. But what you really believe is shown by how you live your life. Now, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. This is a um, flying trapeze. And with the flying trapeze, anybody ever been to the circus and seen the flying trapeze? Uh, it's pretty straightforward. There are two um, roles. There is the flyer and the catcher. And it's a little hard to tell in this um, picture because it's almost in interchangeable. But what is the role of the flyer? Fly through the air. <laughs> okay. What's the role of the catcher? Catch the person who's flying through the air. Exactly. Now, here's what I want you to think about. From the perspective of the flyer, there are th three things you have to do. You have to let go. You have to wait and you have to believe that you will be caught. Think about that. You have to let go, you have to wait, you have to believe that you will be caught. And this is a picture of how Jesus lived his life. Because in order for Jesus to come to our world, he had to let go of his life in heaven. He had to let go of his glory. He had to let go of his rights and privileges as God. And there was a point where Jesus launched his public ministry. He had to let go of his role as a carpenter. And then he had to let go of his preaching. He had to let go of his disciples. He had to let go of his life. And suspended on a cross between heaven and earth, Jesus waits and he waits and he waits, believing that his Father will catch him. And that's a picture of how Jesus calls us to live. By his life and death and resurrection, Jesus shows us that we've got to learn how to let go. We've got to learn how to wait, we've got to believe that God will catch us. But how do you have that kind of life? How do you have that kind of freedom? Well, Jesus would say this, you need to learn what I've taught. And you need to do what I've taught. Jesus said this, whoever hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house on a rock. And when the storm hit, that house stood strong. Church family, I want your house to stand strong. But how will that happen? It happens as we really believe Jesus and take his words and put them into practice in our lives as we're willing to let go and wait on God, believing that God will catch us. So let me ask you a very important question this morning. What do you need to let go of? What do you need to let go of? Maybe right now God is saying, you need to let go of your fear and trust me. It's going to be okay, I'll catch you. And maybe right now you can sense God saying, you need to let go of your need to be in control because you're not. I am. Maybe you sense God saying, you need to let go of, of your pride. You need to let go of your selfishness. You need to let go of your attachment to things. You need to let go of your need for approval. And church family, I know this. It is not easy to let go. It is scary to let go. It is hard to let go because so many times God doesn't catch us right away. We have to wait. And in that waiting, we have to believe that he will catch us. But as we do, it builds our faith. And I will tell you this, in all the years that I've been following Jesus, every time that I let go, every time that I wait, God has caught me. And I believe this, that he will catch you too. Because we have a God who can be trusted, 
a God who will always, always tell us the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible truth that you reveal to us in your word. Thank you for the truth that we find in Jesus himself. And God, today, I pray that you would help us to let go and to wait and to believe that you will always catch us. And Lord, I pray for the person who maybe for the first time realizes that they've never let go. They are holding on to their life, but it's not working. And Father, I pray that, that today they would make the most important decision of their life, the decision to follow Jesus, and that they would just say this in their own words to you right now. Jesus, I'm ready to let go. I want to let go of my past. I want to let go of my sin because I believe that you died for me and that I need a new life and, and I want a new life and so I want to follow you. And Lord, you always run to catch us when we pray that. In fact, God, throughout our lives, as we turn to you, as we trust you, as we let go and wait, you come to rescue us and to catch us. And Lord, whatever, whatever people are going through today, God, whatever pain or challenges or pressures they feel, God, I pray so much that you give us the desire and the ability to trust you, God, to really trust you, to let go of our fear, to let go of our anxiety, to let go of our need to be in control and simply just wait, believing that you will catch us. And God, as we sing this last song, I pray that it would deeply encourage us because it is true what you said, Jesus, whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. God, help us to really believe that because it's true. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.